You know, one of the things very interesting that's happening over in Japan where Debbie is ministering, we have some very good friends uh, who are over there ministering through music, that many of the the best uh, schools of music in Europe are filled with Japanese students because they've come to see that, for instance, with Bach, at the bottom of every score, he wrote SDG. You all know what that means? Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. That Bach wrote everything that he wrote with a picture in his mind that it was because of the glory of God who is the ultimate artist and the inspiration of all art, all music, that it affected his soul in such a way. And so many people, not only in Japan but around the world, are seeing beauty and going, but what is it that inspires beauty? It's not just a rock that came together by happen chance and is going to spin out of control eventually and you'll just be done. But it's a God and creator who made all things particularly unique, you at the top in his image. And he said there is beauty. But the only way to enjoy and appreciate it is to look at the beautiful one. Creation is always to make us look up. It's never the end in and of itself. It's to inspire us. I remember uh, living out in Hawaii as a young Christian and working out there in a ministry and then went overseas for a little while and fishing. And I'm used to southern fishing. You go to a pond and you catch a bass, you catch a brim, and you're like, this is fun. You may see a bullfrog. Out in Hawaii, I was amazed at the fish these guys were bringing out of the ocean. And one of them was called a parrotfish. And it was bright, magenta, bright blue with magenta stripes and spots all over it. And this guy pulled it out of the water. And my first thought was, what an absolutely amazing God who would take the time to create that and paint it that way. Creation is to draw us up into him. And it's to point us to all the beauty of who he is. And the Apostle Paul picked up on that, and he was in an area of the world in a time where all they understood was the physical world, and that it was fully separated from the spiritual dynamic, and the two would come together every now and then, uh, but there was such a, a difference in them that they couldn't figure it out. And Paul was saying, the only way to understand this world is to understand the creator of this world. And the only way to know uh, that creator is to find him and see him through the scriptures, through Christ Jesus, who said he was the word, became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Paul constantly is pointing back to Jesus. He's pointing it all back to Christ. He's pointing it all back to the gospel. He's pointing it all back there. And we've been saying that it's in Christ alone that we find freedom. The series that we've been looking at in Galatians, if you're visiting or new with us, we've been going through Galatians, we'll be there for a little while longer, of saying that you are free in Christ. For freedom Christ set you free. Don't return again. Stand firm, therefore, and don't return again to a yoke of slavery. Stand free in the grace of Jesus Christ given to you by the Father and the salvation that is not based on your righteousness. Don't go back over. Don't give up your freedom and go back into bondage of self-righteousness or works of the law or how good you are or your obedience or all of those things. Those will never make you perfect and right. So Paul was saying, it's all by grace. It's all by the work of Christ on the cross. And so he kept coming back and coming back almost to the point where you go, okay, Paul, I get it. And every week you may be saying to me, okay, Bill, we get it. Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer, uh, said, 
I preach the gospel of grace every single week because my people forget it every single week. It is the centerpiece of our faith and so important that we need to pound it into our heads over and over and over again. You know what your default switch is, don't you? Your default way of dealing with life is by performance. It is. You judge yourself by other people. Some of you may have walked in here and taken a look around to see if anybody else was wearing your dress. (laughs) To see how good the other people may have looked. You may have looked guys at other men and gone, well, they're a little soft in the middle too. I'm okay. We judge ourselves. My life is like a Paul Simon song. Why am I soft in the middle when the rest of my life is so hard? And that's kind of it. We just look uh, around. And we judge on how well we're doing compared to other people. Paul's saying that's not it. The way you know who you are is by looking at Christ alone and having him dwell in your heart. And the way to see these fruit of the Spirit, which we've moved to now in chapter 5, we've said there's this incredible battle going on within the life of the believer, that the Spirit takes up residence within the life of the Christian. And it's not just some theory and it's not just some philosophy, but the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, equal in power and glory. You know where that language comes from, by the way, that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, equal with God in power and glory. It's from our Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism. So it's kind of good to study those things. That's why we want to teach the kids these things because you draw on those and you go, oh, this is God himself and he's dwelling in me and I'm now the temple of God. I'm the dwelling place of God Almighty and he is now working out his salvation in me and it's going to affect me and people are going to know that I'm a Christian by the way that I live. It comes out naturally because of what's happened in my life. And what we'll see, though, is there's a battle. There's still this old part of us that's fallen, and it doesn't like it. And Paul said in Romans 7, these things I'm battling over. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who is going to save me from this? This. He goes, ah, Christ has. And he ultimately will one day. But in the midst of that battle, what we are going to see in our lives is victory. And we're going to see in those victories and in those wins, things produced. Paul calls it the fruit, singular, the fruit of the Spirit. And that's where we've been lately. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Basically saying the law is not going to develop those things in you. You can have counterfeits to those, but they're not really produced by the Spirit in you. That we talked about love coming out of a production of the Spirit. Joy was something that had nothing to do with circumstances. Peace wasn't just an absence of conflict, but it was a flourishing, a reintegrating of your life together, of bringing together wholeness within the life of the believer, and through the belief having an effect on every area that we go. And now we're going to pick up and take on a few of these. We're going to look at this morning, we're going to talk about patience and kindness and goodness and bring those three together. And the text where I'm going to start isn't printed for you or on the screen, uh, but I'm going to start in a little different place. I'm going to start in Romans chapter 5. It's still Paul speaking under the influence of the Spirit and he writes this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance 
Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul, right here, he begins to put this little chain together. He he says perseverance will lead to the development of character, development of character. Hope, hope ultimately has its place in love. And in the midst of all of it, we are rejoicing. And so what we see in this is something very important. That the fruit of the Spirit isn't singular, it is, or that it's not multiple, it's a singular fruit. And they are tied together. That one, in, as one uh, pastor put it, they're self-propagating. They develop one another. They move and are connected together in these ways. Uh, here's what Paul is saying. Suffering in the life of a believer begins a chain reaction. Do you see that? This is all begun by what cause? What's the stimulus? What's the variable that got tossed in? Suffering. Can you determine when suffering happens to you? To a degree, yes and no. No, you probably don't want to walk into, I don't know, an area where gangs are having meetings and ask for directions. You may be inviting suffering. But other times, suffering comes on us. Did any of you cause the effect, uh, cause all the economy to go down? No. None of you caused cancer to happen in your lives. None of you caused death to enter into a loved one. None of you caused those things. Suffering comes. And so suffering comes into the life of a believer. And by the way, suffering comes into the life of everyone. But how the believer deals with it and how the non-believer deals with it, how the person who's come to Christ and the person who has a secular or pagan worldview is the differentiating point. Understand that. If you're here today and you're looking for Christ to fix all of your problems, I don't have that answer for you. Because guess what? Christians get cancer. Christians go bankrupt. Christians experience divorce. Christians experience loss and suffering. Christians have all of those things, those same things. But how we answer those problems, how we respond to them is the difference. For a secular worldview, when suffering comes, what is the natural reaction of someone who has no greater worldview than this world is all there is? How are you going to respond to suffering? You're going to run from it. You're going to do everything possible in your world to get rid of it or alleviate it or mitigate it. For the believer, they see that suffering actually can begin a chain reaction of events which are actually good for you and best for you. Paul says, because of suffering that entered into your life, you began to experience endurance, perseverance, which is a fruit of the Spirit. And perseverance? Oh, perseverance led you down to develop within you a Christian character within your life. And that character developed within you and moved along and began to develop within you a hope, a a sense of going, there's more to it. I'm looking beyond the circumstance. And that hope Because it was developed through the work of the Spirit develops in you a love that God has poured out through you to others. So for the Christian who understands suffering, should we run from it every time? Should we hate God because suffering comes into our life? Or maybe could we look and say, God, you know greater than I do. Your your horizons are larger than mine. Parents, you understand horizons, right? When you've got a three-foot child who's standing right next to you and they want to go run out into the street, they're only seeing a certain amount of street, aren't they? You're standing at six feet and you're looking out over the street and saying, no, there's a car coming. That's why I don't want you to go there. God has an ultimate horizon. And he may be saying to you, this suffering that is in your life, 
is there for good. I can work all things for good. It doesn't make sense sometimes. It doesn't diminish the effect of that suffering. I don't want you to hear me as coming across as flippant or or as uncaring. It's tough in the middle of it. We've all struggled with those things. But if we can see something greater in the midst of it, we can learn from it. Many of you have bought into a lie and it goes something like this. I'll be better off just because I got through it. I'll be better just if I make it through. Folks, that's not true. All you'll be at the end of making it through is someone who's made it through. You may not have learned anything. But if in the middle of it, whatever it is, you start asking really good questions. God, what in the world am I supposed to be learning about you in the middle of this trial? What am I supposed to be learning about you and me in the middle of this? What is it that you can begin to learn things and then as you go through it on the other side of it, you're not the same person. You have been changed because of the work of the Spirit in your life through that time. And Paul comes back and look at what he said at the very beginning of this. It's so important. Verse, five, verse 1 He begins with this. If you've got your Bibles, it's Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith. That's an odd beginning, isn't it? Basically what Paul is saying is because you are saved by grace and not works. Because you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by any of your good works. Because of that, all these other things can make sense. But if you are starting over at a point of self-righteousness, and you have done it, and you've earned it, you won't get to the same end. You won't see hope developed in your life. You won't see endurance developed in your life. You won't find joy in the middle of those difficult times. Why? You want to know why? Because you don't deserve it. God, I invested in this relationship. I've done a lot. And I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. I've only put in a dollar and you're giving me $10 back of tough stuff. I'll take a dollar of tough stuff back from you, but I won't take 10 There's no hope in that. There's bitterness that comes from saying, I didn't deserve this. You read books that say, why do good things, bad things happen to good people? And you go, yes. And you realize that the rabbi who wrote that started from a very wrong place. The question should be, why should anything good ever happen to a bad person? If you've been justified by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, and nothing of yourself, then you approach suffering differently. The work of the Spirit in your life then can produce something. And you can say, all right, Lord, I don't know why you're doing this, but I trust you, and I have hope in you. And I'm going to experience joy in the middle of this because I'm going to focus not necessarily just on the circumstance, but I'm going to see Christ in the middle of it. And so what we're going to do in like five minutes or less, seven minutes or less, um, or I'll send you my notes, email me. Um, That would probably be better. Patience 
kindness, and goodness. Actually, what I'll do is this. We're just going to talk about patience, but kindness and goodness are the same way. They're developed in the same way. It starts at a point of going, how does my focusing on the fact that I'm saved by grace alone, by Christ alone, and not of my own works, that I, I didn't choose him and I'm not the one holding on to him. He is the one who came down from all eternity and poured his love into me when I never would have wanted him. I was running from him, and yet he came and pursued me and changed my heart so that I would believe the things that, that had been taught to me in the gospel. And I've been saved in him, and I never can lose it, for it's an eternal gift of his, because of my focusing on the, the continued, beautiful work of Christ, completed once and for all at the cross. How does it produce patience? Well, pop up on the screen, Colossians 1, 9 through 14, and this will be a little case study. What I want to do is to help teach you how to learn these things on your own, so you don't have to always come back to me or to somebody else, but you can have some of these tools for yourself as you study and you think and you learn. Paul writes in Colossians 1, 9 through 14, and speaks of patience or long-suffering. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy." giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. So he says here, I want you, I want to see in you produced this endurance, or the word means long-tempered, obviously the opposite of short-tempered, that you would be long-tempered in your responses to things. One person defined it this way, long-suffering is that quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation, which does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. It is the opposite of anger and is associated with mercy and is used of God. Here's a good example of perseverance or long-temperedness. Don't press the send button. You know what I mean by that? Anybody ever written an email really quickly right after you've gotten one and you are ready to go? Anybody else besides me? That's Really? That's it? Man, I write those things regularly. And I'm sorry, I've written some of them to you guys. And I'm just writing and I'm like, this person deserves that. And they can't believe they asked that. And they did this. I'm going to let them know what I think about them. Because I think it's for their betterment that I challenge their wrongness. And I'm ready to go. Long-suffering? Delete, not send. Maybe that's it. Maybe it says I was stuck in traffic in, South Carolina, in Columbia yesterday for the football game and someone had the audacity to pull in the intersection in front of me and my light turned green. I needed to get someplace. And this bozo pulled right in front of me knowing that the light was going to turn red and he was going to be there and I had some place to go and he thought that his place to go was more important than my place to go. How did I respond to that one, Will? Not well. Honk the horn. Let him know by a, not a finger gesture, a hand gesture. What are you doing? What are you doing parked in front of me? And guess what he responded with? What are you doing? And so here are these two strangers in the middle of Columbia having a wonderful sign language meeting. 
I didn't experience long-suffering in that. I was not long-tempered in that moment. And Will and Lisa and others usually want to crawl under a chair when I don't experience long-suffering at that. So how does this gospel affect silly moments like that or longer moments of being with individuals who are difficult to love or being in difficult relationships or dealing with terminal illness or dealing with things that aren't just short Maybe you go to scriptures and you go back and instead of focusing on that, the gospel has a way of ministering and we look back and we see how absolutely long-suffering God was towards men. His faithfulness and his goodness not to destroy them when they deserved it. That he didn't hit the smite button, good old King James, and take care of them all but he was long-suffering with them. And then instead of just having obscure Old Testament or New Testament references, we begin to apply the truth of the gospel towards us and realize how absolutely long-suffering God is with me. How I don't get it over and over again. And sometimes my mental image of my Father in heaven is this, Billy, Really? Again? I taught you that one already. We've been through this before. Don't you get it? But you know what my heavenly father is saying? Come on. Let me remind you of the truth of who you are. I've done this so that you will know the next time, that you can learn. Bill, I love you. And I'm always with you. And I will never forsake you, even until the end of the world. What can separate you from me? Can death, or heights, or principalities, or powers, or anything of this age or the age come? Can anything separate you from me? Because I promise you, Bill, and I promise you all who love me, I will never, ever, ever leave you. I'll always be with you, no matter what you do. I'll be with you. Do you think that message of focusing on that cross and what was brought to you in the gospel might affect how you respond to somebody or some situation in a long-suffering, persevering way? Does it have that opportunity to do that? Instead, our normal response is, well, I just got to buck up. Just don't be impatient. Just stop being impatient. God, I need patience today. Waiting for it, God. Anytime now. Instead, saying, Lord, as you've been patient with me, would I see that and would the beauty of what I see there affect how I respond to everyone else around me and even myself? You do have to be long-suffering with yourself too. Give yourself some grace for God's given it to you. Kindness, the same way. How are you kind to a person that doesn't really deserve kindness or goodness? Remember, how beautiful the love and kindness and goodness of God has been towards you who didn't deserve a thing. But again, we'll end with this. If you're starting over here that you deserve something, that you've earned something, you will not see the fruit of the Spirit developed in your life. Paul says you have to be sold out to the reality that it's by grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, only, and not of yourselves. 
So as you begin to approach some of these things, take a moment. Don't send it. Don't delete it. Don't do it. Don't honk the horn. Don't do whatever. Pause and turn your gaze and pray, Lord, remind me. Remind me of who you are and how you've treated me in this moment. Lord, remind me of your great longing and loving of me. And would you give me the strength of that spirit living in me to show grace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness to folks who don't deserve it because you've shown it to me, the chief of ones who don't deserve it. That's the beauty of the gospel message. So this week, what we probably need to repent of, as one pastor so eloquently said it, is not so much our horrible sins over here, but our damnable good works. We need to repent of our righteousness and self-righteousness almost more than we do our unrighteousness. Because it's our self-righteousness that keeps us from seeing the beauty of the work of Christ in our lives and his righteousness on our behalf. Folks, he loves you and he's poured out his love into you in Christ. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible, beautiful truth that is. We want to see these things developed in different ways and when we don't, we get frustrated We don't understand how they're all tied together and we really don't understand how the basis of all of them is the beauty of the grace of the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Father, would the Spirit now work in our hearts and our lives that we would see a huge cross given for us all of the love that's been shown to us in Christ and would that love so overwhelm us that we'd be filled with love towards others and filling their buckets of love each and every day that we would be filled with joy and a flourishing in our lives of peace we'd be patient and kind and all of these things because of the natural work of the gospel in our lives father we praise you and we thank you that you are good to us and we we want to bask in your goodness today to christ be the glory Amen. Let's stand and end and worship today and sing together.